You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I'm wondering if you have ever stood in the shallow water as the ocean waves or lake waves uh, come crashing in at the seashore. You know, it can be fun at first to to dig your feet into the sand or even the the little pebbles and try to withstand the force of the water. But eventually, you you find that you you get knocked down if you don't get out of the water. The waves are, are unforgiving and they are unrelenting as they come in. They do not differentiate whether you have tree trunks for legs or you are an infant who is just learning to walk. They do not consider whether you have been knocked down a hundred times or you're already drowning in the water. For Christians who are persevering through trials, getting out of these trials is not as easy as just stepping out of the water. Often, we can't get out. We don't know when God will bring this specific affliction to an end in this season. We, we, we brace ourselves with the promises of God, and yet we can still feel overwhelmed by bouts of discouragement and disappointment. We lean into God-given support. We hold the hands of our community, this church, and yet we can still struggle to stand firm. And this past year and year and a half has been a time of, of weary trial for all of us in varying ways. Our faith in a good and sovereign God has truly been tested. And I hope and pray that by looking at our passage today, you will be encouraged to persevere in the faith with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So with that, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'll be reading the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of the Lord. What we will see in our passage is that Paul encourages the Thessalonians to do three things as he bolsters their faith. He will encourage them to see God's truth, to spot God's grace in their lives, and to seek God's power in prayer. So we'll see the first thing in the first five verses of our text today. So far in this letter, we've seen Paul's great affection, his love for the Thessalonians. He is, he is their spiritual parent. He planted this church. He is their gentle mother, like a father with his children. But because of the work of Satan, he has been forcibly removed. He's been hindered from coming back to this church. He had only about three precious weeks with them, three Sabbath days where he was able to teach them um, the doctrines of the gospel. So you can imagine his, his anxiety. He is, he is a parent separated from their one-month-old baby. There is no way to communicate. There's no FaceTime. There's no Zoom to see or even talk to their child. He could not be there to, to care for them, to hold them. And he knows that they are facing persecution for their faith, and they will continue to do so. This is too much for, for Paul, their, their parent, to bear. He, he cannot contain his love for them, so his love moves him to action, and he sends a representative to see how they are doing. So look with me at verse 1. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. He stays back and sends Timothy in his place. His choice to stay back alone is one of, of sacrificial love. He would, he would lose com companionship, a sense of camaraderie as he labored there for the sake of the gospel. We, we read in, in Acts 17 that ministry in Athens was, was difficult. He was mocked by his belief in Jesus. He made very few converts there. Paul really could have used some encouragement. It would have taken Timothy about a month to get back while Paul is ministering alone. But he chose, he chooses to be left alone for the sake of the Thessalonians. Now notice what Paul says about Timothy in verse 2. He doesn't just send anyone to the Thessalonians. He sends his right-hand men. Listen, look, look at the titles that he refers to Timothy. He refers to him as his brother. Now, this is more than just a term of, of endearment, of, of close uh, spiritual familial terms, but it speaks to how Timothy has labored with him in the gospel. Listen to how Paul commends him in his letter to the Philippians. He tells him, you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. But more than just being Paul's co-laborer, he is God's co-worker. God's co-worker. God himself has approved Timothy for the work of the gospel. Paul's point is that Timothy 
is an important authoritative representative of Paul. He sends his best for his spiritual children when he's prevented from seeing them. But he, does, he doesn't just want to know how they are doing. He sends Timothy for a very specific purpose, as we see in our text. He sends Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. These, these baby Christians, they could, they could walk, they could talk, they could intake their spiritual food, which is the word of God. But they were unable to face the work of Satan as he used persecution to discourage their faith. Babies aren't equipped to fight off the flaming darts of the evil one. So Paul seeks to fortify what will shield them from Satan's attacks, and he aims at their faith. Here, faith is more than just their initial response of trust in Christ. It refers to the entirety of the Christian life, the activities, the way of thinking that befits a Christian. Paul wants to build upon the foundation of their new spiritual life to strengthen and establish what is already there. He wants to exhort them, to encourage them to press on ahead in their life in Christ. And how he does this, as we'll see in the next verse, is he reminds them of truth. So look with me again at verse 3. He says, For you yourselves know, you yourselves know that we were destined for this. He reminds them that in God's divine providence, he has appointed suffering and persecution for the believer. Paul says this as well in his second epistle to Timothy. He says, All, every single one who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, will be persecuted. The Thessalonians, they know this, this truth. Paul says that for when we were with you, we kept telling you again and again beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. New believers would have been taught about the suffering that they would have to endure. When Paul finishes his missionary journey in, in Acts 14, he does the same thing to the group of churches that he planted. Notice the similar language between this passage and our passage in 1 Thessalonians. He returns to the churches he plants. This is what he does, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering was a large facet of what it meant to be a Christian. Because the way of the Christian is the way of the suffering Savior. Even in the short time Paul had with them, he repeatedly told them, he kept returning to this theme that suffering was a large facet of the Christian life. He knew that young disciples need to know that they will suffer for the faith. It is promised, and this means that it leaves no possibility for the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel to find any traction in the mind of a believer. I was uniquely reminded about this when I was leading someone to Christ in a, in a closed country about eight years ago. Over, over several conversations and, and meals with him, 
I'd explain to him the, the basic elements of the gospel. That God is holy, that God is good, that he created us in his own image. But that in our sin and rebellion, we deserve death, separation from a holy God. And that God in his love and his grace and his mercy sent Christ to die and pay the penalty for our sin. And that by exercising faith that he grants us, we can have life eternal in him and have our sins forgiven. So I, to- I told him all this and he, he believed all this. And I uh, led him to, um, to pray to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior of his life. But my, my partner that was um, doing, doing the evangelism with me, she, she stopped me before um, this guy prayed. And she asked him, she looked at him and asked him, are you willing to suffer for Christ? Are you willing to have Jesus as your ultimate treasure? Are you willing to risk everything, your reputation with your friends, your teachers? Are you willing to risk your acceptance and approval by your family for Christ? And I'm grateful for her gracious rebuke. And I'm grateful that God in his grace led this led this university student to count the cost and still follow Jesus for his eternal joy. Following Jesus means following him in his suffering, sharing in his suffering, being made like him in his death, facing ridicule and scorn and shame. And this continues for the entirety, the whole length of a disciple's life. And this is, how, this is how Ernest Best puts it. In commenting on this passage, he says, Paul is not thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church return to normality. Normality is persecution. Paul is saying that it should be no surprise to you, my, my dear brothers and sisters, I told you that this is what is going to happen. And right now you see my words being confirmed before your very eyes. Even so, Paul, he wants to know what is going on in the lives of the Thessalonians, not only for their sake, but also for his. Not only to equip them and encourage them in the faith, but also to to ease his worry for this young church. So look with me at verse five. It says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The question here, what, what, what Paul wants to know is not whether the tempter had tempted them. He knows that the devil is at work. He knows that spiritual warfare is a reality. He knows that Satan does not want anyone to know about the saving message of Jesus Christ. The question is whether the Thessalonians had continued in their faith. What was at stake was their salvation. If they abandoned their new loyalty to Christ, Paul's gospel ministry there would have been in vain. So that's what's eating away at Paul as he writes this. Had they continued their allegiance to Christ, was there anyone who had defected, rejected the faith because of the enormous pressure of persecution? 
was all his labor for nothing? And we have our answer in the following verses, and it leads us to our second point. Paul encourages them to spot God's grace in their lives. So as we, as we read this, you can feel a, a shift, a change in Paul's countenance. Look with, look with me in verse 6. You know, Paul had been filled with, with worry for his flock, but, but now, now Timothy brought an amazing report back to Paul. He saw vibrant evidences of spiritual life in the Thessalonians. Timothy tells Paul about their, their faith and their love. They continued to, to believe in the elementary doctrines of the gospel. They continued to, to manifest sacrificial love in their relationships with one another. And even more, they did not forget about him, their spiritual father, but they longed to see him. Because of this, Paul is, is comforted. He can, he can breathe a sigh of relief. He can rest easy knowing what he's heard from Timothy. Look at verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul was, he was left alone. He was ministering in a hard place but he saw that he had much in common with the Thessalonian church. They shared the same faith. They shared the same great love of Christ. They shared in the same afflictions, the trials promised to those who seek to live a godly life. In the trenches of, of spiritual warfare, Paul and the Thessalonians had forged a most precious Relationship, and this brought much encouragement and comfort to Paul. This explains what he says in, in verse 8. He says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul is able to, to enjoy life again on hearing of their faith amidst affliction. Waves of persecution had, had crashed upon them again and again from their own people. And resistance would be humanly impossible for them. But Paul knows that the Lord had sustained their faith. They were standing fast in the Lord. They were relying on the power of the Lord, the one who is able to deliver them from the wrath to come. Without using the word, Paul points to the hope that they have placed in Christ. Paul sees faith, love, and hope in the Thessalonians. And what could bring more joy to a spiritual father or a pastor than to hear that? It is with great joy that, that Pastor Josh and Pastor Tim and myself can say this about you as well. Most of us have not experienced the same type or degree of persecution that the Thessalonians did. But our faith has been tested during this year. It's been a difficult year for, for many of us, both individually and collectively as a church. Many of us have experienced loss and, and disappointment and straining and the lack of depth in relationships and not being able to connect with one another. Together we have felt the, the numbing sorrow of, of longing to be among one another to sit together under the preaching of God's word, to, 
to sing both to God and address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We've had to fight collectively to believe that God is good and sovereign and trustworthy. But it brings us much joy to see and hear circumstance-defying faith in all of you. The fact that you are sitting here in these pews today is evidence of your faith. It shows that you cherish the preaching of God's word. It shows that you know the importance of being among God's people. We've seen you strive for joy and faith in Christ in a dry season. We've listened to your prayers expressing trust in God's sovereignty and God's goodness. We've seen gospel-centered, sacrificial love. Time spent in visiting others or sending food to young families. Extending love in forgiveness that covers a multitude of sins. We've seen love being fought for in, in marriages to display the gospel. We've seen love displayed in sharing the deep and messy parts of our souls with one another. And we've seen expectant hope in you. Hope in God being who he says he is, that he never changes, and that he will do what he has promised to do in his word. We've seen the hope of comfort in this life be replaced with the, the mind-blowing eternal hope of the life to come that is promised to us who are in Christ. In all of this, because the Spirit of God is at work among us, his people. In Paul, Paul in verse 9, he speaks, he speaks well for us when he says in verse 9, what thanksgiving, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Words cannot express the joy that he has on hearing and seeing this news. God himself was acting in the lives of the Thessalonians to produce this spiritual tenacity in the face of persecution. God was the ultimate reason for this good report. Paul echoes the question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 116, how, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? And in asking that question, we see the nature of the grace of God. It is a debt, it is a lavish, generous gift that is impossible to repay. Now, even with all of this operating in their lives, in seeing their faith, their hope, their love, the abundant grace of God at work, Paul still sees a need to come to them again. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul's not saying two contradicting things here. He's not praising them for their faith and also saying that their faith is lacking. But what we need to remember is that Paul only stayed there for a while. He only stayed there for three Sabbaths, three, three Sundays. These, these spiritual infants would start to need solid food and not milk. He's not blaming them for their, their natural immaturity, but he speaks here of his intent to fill in the gaps, the moral and theological gaps that wouldn't be present 
in a young Christian. This prepares them to hear the issues that Paul will discuss in the second half of the letter of of being pure in, in, in their sexuality, in relationship between brothers and sisters and the coming of the Lord. He knows that a long-term, long-distance relationship with with them will not do in terms of completing their training. And this is why, as we see our last point, that he asks God to direct his way to them. So we come to our last point. We've seen him, we've seen Paul encourage them to see God's truth, to spot God's grace in their lives, and finally to seek God's power in prayer. Paul has has two wishes that he brings before God. And the first one is in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. In chapter 2, we saw that Satan had hindered, he had blocked the way from Paul getting back to Thessalonica. And he now asks God, and Jesus to clear the way, to open the way wide open that Satan has blocked. One thing that I, I love about our, our, our prayer meetings is I get to sit and listen to the prayers of mature believers who have lived much more life than I have, who have seen God's goodness many more years than I have. And it gives me a window into their faith and it teaches me how to pray. This is what Paul is is doing here. He is allowing the church to listen to their pastor, to their spiritual father, as he pours out his heart to God. Now, we we might just see this as a a very simple and and commonplace petition. You know, God, help help me get back to my beloved church, to my brothers and sisters. But if we, just, if we just skim over that, we would miss an, an essential, an enormous part of Paul's theology and his basic teaching of the gospel. We would miss his high Christology, his doctrine of Christ, the person and work of Christ. Notice in the verse how, how Paul puts the Father and Jesus on the same level. It is, it is both the Father and the Son who have jurisdiction over his comings and his goings. Paul, Paul in his writings, he, he never goes into detail about the relationship between the Father and the Son. But he simply assumes what we know as true. That the Father and the Son share in deity. That they work together, and yet they are distinct from one another. What this tells us is that Paul had previously instructed them on who Jesus is. Even in three three Sundays that he spent with them, he taught them enough about the person and work of Christ that he could write this and that there would be no misunderstanding of what he is saying. What we see is that the elementary doctrines of the gospel, what is the core of the Christian faith, is the person, the work, and the worth of Christ. We see that Paul's, his second petition in verse 12 is directed to Jesus alone. This is what he asks. He asks, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Just as Jesus has control over his every step, he has authority over their increase in love. 
You know, many of us may want to increase in, in love. That's a good virtue for us to increase in. And what Paul shows us is the way to do this is to pray for it. He knows that it is God that makes us increase. God gives the increase. We cannot muster up love in and of ourselves. Love must find its, its source from the overflowing, the unending, the limitless, limitless, infinite fountain of love that is the triune God. Paul wishes that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge would overflow and abound in them as well. But as we see here, it's not just mutual love among the church, but it's also love to all, including those who are persecuting them. He wants them to show the same affection that he has for them. But more importantly, for them to show the same love that Jesus showed on the cross for those that were persecuting him. As he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Paul is saying, imitate me in my love as I imitate Christ's love. Now, an increase in abundance in selfless love isn't just a means and ends to itself, but it leads to an ultimate purpose. And this brings us back to the main theme of the book. So look with me at our final verse, verse 13. Paul prays for an increase in love so that, in order that, he, Jesus, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Can you see the connection that Paul draws between love and holiness? Love is an enormous, gigantic part of what it means to be holy. It would be Jesus who would make them abound in love. And it would be Jesus who would cause them to be without fault in regards to their holiness. Holiness in being consecrated to God, separated from sin. The wonderful, glorious news of the gospel is that rendering yourself ultimately blameless is not something you can do yourself. We like to be self-sufficient. We like to do everything by ourselves. But this action, this pronouncement belongs to Jesus alone. We are justified. We are declared righteous at the moment of our conversion. The blood of Christ covers our sin. By faith, his righteousness becomes ours. We are given the definitive status of saints, of holy ones. But in our Christian lives, we are also being made holy in the process of sanctification. The Spirit changes us from one degree of glory to another, causing us to be increasingly separate from sin, increasingly single-mindedly devoted for the purposes of an infinite and holy God. And the glorious news is that on the final day, when Jesus returns, when King Jesus returns, before the presence of God, Jesus will establish the hearts of his people blameless in holiness. The stain of sin will be completely removed. He will have finished cleansing his bride by the washing of the water with the word. He will present the church to himself in glory and splendor, in holiness without blemish. This prayer 
will be answered with a resounding yes and amen from the throne of Almighty God. Now, how, how can we apply and obey this passage? How can we, both as individuals and collectively as a church, how can we stand firm in our faith, playing the necessary part in our sanctification as we wait for Jesus to return? Here's two ways for us to consider. First, is to prepare our children for affliction. Prepare our children for affliction. All of our children are precious gifts to us. They are gifts given to us by God. And our instinct is to protect what is precious to us. Of course, that is a good instinct. We don't want our children to suffer. It's an uncomfortable and undesired scenario. We want them to have a better life than we did. But what we are confronted with in this passage and really all throughout scripture is that the Christian is guaranteed, guaranteed to undergo affliction for their faith. It's an unavoidable reality. So ask, is this an element of how we disciple our children? Are we guiding them to count the high cost, the life-consuming cost of discipleship to Jesus? How we can do this is to, to teach it and to model it. Make the gospel consistent and clear and central. God sent his son to suffer for us and to suffer with us. We live in a broken world. And God's word tells us that in this world, we will have tribulations. But this doesn't change the fact that God is, is sovereign, that God is good, that he is loving, and that he is wise. His purposes are good and loving and wise for our eternal joy. And one day, our hope is that we will be resurrected in glory and that God will make all things right. An eternal weight of glory awaits everyone who belongs to Christ. And as you teach this, model, model the truths of the gospel as you go through your own sufferings and your own disappointments. By the power of the Spirit, fight for joy in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope that does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the steadfastness of your faith develops perseverance. Invite your children to join you in humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties on him because you know that he cares for you. Your own response to affliction will leave a powerful and lasting impression on their hearts. So that's the first way. Prepare your children for affliction. And lastly, plead for corporate holiness. Plead for corporate holiness. We have the privilege of being called, called God's holy ones, his saints. 
But we also have the obligation, the responsibility to strive for holiness, not only as individuals, but collectively as a church. Paul, in our passage, he gives us a model for how to pursue being blameless in holiness. He does not ask us to, to follow more rules, to read more books, but he directs us to pray for love, to pray for love, an increase, an overflow, an exponential growth in gospel-rooted love for one another and for all people. His prayer for love in, in his letters are, are directed at one aim, and that is the holiness of Christ's bride. He prays for the Ephesians that they would have power to know the love of Christ so that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays for the Philippians that they would abound in love more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Love leading to holiness. I like how John Piper puts this. He says, if we are done with selfishness and live for others, that is love, we will be abounding in holiness. So brothers and sisters, my, my beloved church family, let us be done with selfishness. Let us abound in love. Let us pray for the spirit to produce an ever-increasing gospel-centered, selfless love towards one another. Pray that Jesus would build up his church as he promised in love. Pray that God would increase our love for the lost who have yet to know Christ in Bradford. And if you're, if you're praying through um, our membership list in, in our church or, or other people in the church and you don't know someone very well yet, use this prayer for them. Lord, make them increase in love for other believers and for other people that they would be holy as you are holy. Let us, by the power of the Spirit, be a church, a body of believers that abounds in Christ-exalting love as we pursue holiness before our Father. Let us pray. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would produce the fruit of love in each one of us. Allow your infinite, holy, steadfast love to cascade down into our lives and fill us with overflowing love for one another and for those who are lost. Holy Spirit, do your work in convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment that we may be holy as you, Father, are holy. We pray that we would grow in holiness as a church, not as a, as a checklist or something for us even to boast in, but that it would redound to your glory, for you are worthy. We pray and ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.